Welcome to Place Your Time Now. I'm Pam McKinnon, and this is season one, episode four, with playwright James Iams and director Morgan Green, who are two of the three co-artistic directors of the Wilma Theater in Philadelphia. This conversation was recorded over Zoom on Friday, November 13th. I was at my mother's home outside Buffalo, New York, having spent the U.S. national election at her side. And later that day, I attended, as ever, over Zoom, the culmination of a workshop of a play that ACT has commissioned by Issa Davis called Girls, Girls, Chance, Chance, Music, Music. What I think has been really remarkable is, and also exhausting, I won't, I'll be very vulnerable about that. It is both exciting and exhausting that our industry has just decided not to stop. The regionals did not stop. Like for the most part, they have kept going and trying to pivot and, and figure out what to do. Hi, this is Pam McKinnon, ACT's artistic director, and you're listening to Place Here, Time Now. My guests today are Morgan Green and James Imes. Morgan Green is a director of theater, film, and radio play. She is a co-artistic director of New Saloon Theater Company in Brooklyn and a co-artistic director of the Wilma Theater in Philadelphia. She was born and raised in the Bay Area. James Imes is a playwright and director. He is an associate professor of theater at Villanova University and a co-artistic director at the Wilma Theater in Philadelphia, PA. He is originally from Bessemer City, North Carolina. This will be fun. Excited. So Morgan, you and I have known each other for a number of years. Yes, we and have. I'm a big fan of your work as a director. And we first worked together, you were assistant director on a couple of my projects. I have vivid memories of you as assistant director on Bruce Norris's play The Qualms at Playwrights Horizons, and a flu, like a deleterious flu went around. And you very courageously hopped from character actor to actor person to person almost weekly yes i i think i played almost every role yeah yeah absolutely yeah no that was that was bold there were a lot of props and there was a blow job and i had to give it and receive it at different times in the process (laughs) and we're off welcome to theater yeah yeah Great. And James, you and I don't know each other that well. I am so taken by by your work as a playwright. It was, you know, I feel very lucky that the conservatory got to do a play of yours, Moon Man Walk, just in these last yeah. couple of weeks and loved hearing you speak at a an event. There was something at that ACT event that where you were talking about, and I'm probably going to butcher the phrase you used, but you were talking about like the instilling pleasure in an mm. audience. And and maybe you could talk about that a little bit more. We'll talk about lots of things today, but that was one thing that I'd just love to like dive into as a theater artist, instilling pleasure in an audience. Yeah, I think plays should be uh, pleasurable. And I, and you know, pleasure I think works in a lot of different ways. It's not always like, you can get a lot of pleasure out of something that makes you weep. You can get a lot of pleasure out of something that makes you laugh, um, something that arouses you, like all of those things offer pleasure. And um, as a writer, I'm all trying to find a way of like, well, what can I do to delight people? What can I, what, what's the but, what are the buttons that I can push um, to activate the empathy impulse in people? 
um, which I think, you know, when we're trying to get people to, to have a better relationship with pleasure, it's actually about improving their lives and, and how they move through the world. So yeah, I, I'm trying to do that. I, 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 I have a sense that I might be successful in moments, but I don't know. <laughs> I have no way of really knowing if, if this project is actually doing anything. <laughs> and Morgan, what, as, as, as a theater maker, as primarily a director, but also a producer, um, what, what is your relationship with an audience? Or do you think about it? I think about sensory overload a lot. How, how many things we're used to doing at the same time these days. And, um, I think about what I'm feeding the audience, like how many sort of forms of food at the same time. I think trying to achieve just the feeling of being present or forgetting about, you know, what you're gonna make for dinner, being transported for a moment. Uh, that's my that's my experience when I direct and when I make theaters that I finally just get to do this one thing that's all consuming. And so I think I'm trying to sort of create that experience for the audience. And as, as a theater maker, Morgan, were you, did you come at it by way of acting the way a lot of theater makers, a lot of directors do? Or were you always a director? Or how did, how did you know that you were a director, I guess is what I'm asking. I, I did start as an actor. Um, I took acting classes at ACT, actually. I would take the bus over there. Um, mm -hmm. And then it was in undergrad where I took a, a directing class for the first time. And um, my professor, Joanne Acolytus, just simply said, you have an eye. And then I was like, oh my God, I can do theater without the stage fright. This is so great. So I promptly left acting behind me. <laughs> and James, you are a playwright, you're a director, you're also a performer. Was there, was there a gateway drug that brought you into theater? Yeah, uh, it really is comic books. I wrote my first play when I was 13. And I was obsessed with comic books and I still read comic books. I love them. And my grandmother sort of saw that and I think read it as like something that she needed to fix, <laughs> like get out of those comic books. And she was like, you should, you know, those are just plays without, you know, with pictures. It's just people talking to each other. And I was like, that does make a lot of sense. Like story being told through what we say to one another and how we act with each other. Uh, made a lot of sense to me and she was like you're gonna write this play for the Christmas pageant this year it's gonna happen and I did it wasn't very good actually she sent it to me not too long ago she like laminated it and it was really beautiful this like dot matrix printout of this play that I wrote when I was 13 and um and they did at my at my church back in North Carolina and so that was intoxicating but I don't think I like realized that I wanted to do theater until I was in college. And I, and that gateway drug was absolutely acting. Um, I took an acting class because you had to take fine arts and then it was suddenly like, oh yeah, I think I might be good at this. James, I asked you earlier if you would read a recent play of yours, a recent short play of yours called Tell It To Me Tell it, tell it to me in my ear. Tell it to me yeah. in my ear. <laughs> I read it just a couple days ago. It's up on the Playwrights Horizons, I think they call it the mm -hmm. Almanac. I'd love it if you could indulge us. I, I will. I read it right before I got on. I was like, ooh, let me make sure that I rehearse this a bit. Um, 
and just for, for the folks listening at home, there's like adventures in, in topography in this. So if you, you have to also go look at it too, uh, but I, I'll, I'll just read it now. <clears throat> Tell it to me in my ear. One eye at a time, you are coming to the realization that you are inside a play. You smile at this realization because you like plays. Sometimes you love plays, other times you would rather not. You become aware of your breath. You are excited. You have been waiting all day to see a friend you hadn't seen in a very long time. You and your friend have shared a birthday and an intense relationship that spans many years. This meeting is special because you have traveled a great distance to get here. You are now in a city that is completely foreign to you. You arrive at the rendezvous location just past the church, around the corner from the drugstore and across the street from a big old tree that's both tall and wide. It's the kind of tree you expect to find in a movie about magic. You look at the tree from the root to the last leaf on top. I've been here before. It feel like a dream or something or someone close to you. That sensation of the familiar creeps up from your wrist and tattoos your skin with chill bumps. You've been here before, but you don't remember why or with whom. You just know that you have been in this very spot. You look at your phone to check to see if you have the right location, that you have arrived at the right place. That's the right time too. I did it, right? Yes, you have. A lace-like shadow opens and spreads across your face like a setting sun. You look up from the phone. Your friend is standing before you. You sit, arrested for a few moments, peppered by the moving dalliance of light filtered through the tree and your friend. They become one thing to you. You. Hello. Friend. I dreamed of you last night. You. Really? Friend, you were walking along a bridge in the middle of the day and you were wearing green and I thought you looked so incredibly alive and well and recognizable, like I could completely see you. You looked utterly vulnerable and I wanted to yell out to you, how you managed to look so damn sublime? But as I thought I might yell this in my dream, I realized that I wasn't just thinking about yelling it, I was indeed in the act of yelling at you. And you stopped and turned and looked at me and in the dream, it was as if you teleported to the space right in front of me because suddenly we were standing face to face. And you took my hand and I opened my mouth to speak and then I woke up. So, I had called you to tell you that I was thinking about you. I had hoped you would find some time to come and talk to me. And I was also wondering if you could tell me what you were about to say, you know, in my dream. You. Oh, no. Oh, no. You care so much for your friend and you want to desperately to be able to give them the answer they are desiring. You want to be able to tell them something so they can see what you see. You take your friend by the hand and pull them close to you, ear to lips. You whisper something benevolent and wise in your friend's ear. Your friend looks at you. You worry that you have said the wrong thing. Your friend takes a few steps back from you. Is this it? you think. 
Your friend finally gives you a bewildered nod and walks away. Good talk. You wait as you watch your friend be swallowed up whole by the horizon line. You wonder if you have broken them. You open your mouth to speak when, one eye at a time, you are coming to the realization that you have overslept. Shit. That's it. I love it, James. Thank you for reading it. That's very precious. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> it's precious. It's precious. Well, I mean, for me, the act of a writer reading their work is mm. very precious to me. Mm. I had had a handful of experiences of that. And I always just learn so much um, about character, about about tone. It's just really, yeah, it's precious. Thank you. It really would be the best first meeting with a playwright every time if you could just have the playwright read the play to you as a director. That was a thing. I, I, I feel like that that might be a thing. If I ever start like a playwright producing organization again, I'm, I'm going to have us do that. You have to read your play to us. <laughs> I think that would I be. I mean, in the, in, in the years that Jim Houghton ran the O'Neill, that, that was the first, the first rehearsal would be the playwright. The, like all the playwrights that were there would read would wow. read their plays in succession. And a lot of writers were mortified by it and yeah. some loved it and just were like, actually, let's fire the cast. I'm the person, I'm it. That, that, that gives me great pleasure, James. And it also sort of seems like you took pleasure in writing it, or at least it feels that way. And I, I love did. that you don't get to hear what is whispered in the ear. Mm. It's a fun story about whispering. That's a, like a motif in my work. And when I got married, one of the things we did at our wedding is that we whispered something into each other's ears that only we know that was not public. And people to this day are like, what did you whisper? <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, I have to actually give, I, it, this is a tiny little sad moment. I have to give honor to who I, got, I stole that from. It's an actor from People's Light Theater Company, a man named Graham Smith an amazing actor who, who we recently lost. Um, but he was the person that gave me that idea. So um, I'm thinking about him a lot lately. It's, you know, he just recently passed away. Can we talk a little bit about the Philadelphia theater scene? I know that, that you've, been, you've, been, you've been a longstanding part of it, right, James? Yeah. I love the city, but I always work there as a New Yorker going out of town to work. I've certainly seen some stuff over the years. Do you think there is a, a Philly theater style? Yeah, it's uh, it's changed over the years. Like I would say when I got out of grad school back in 2006, the things that I was really gravitating to were gritty, devised, um, uh, body-influenced, voice-influenced, like the work of the actor was um, was cerebral and thoughtful, and there was actually an inter always an intellectual engagement with the character, but these really full-bodied performances, and that sort of permeated across the, the whole community. It wasn't just in the devising community. And um, and I think that's just sort of expanded out into like the ambition of like how people produce. I think that is also a marker. Like um, the design is always, um, in my opinion, and even at small theater superlative um, because they want the body to have these like really great spaces in which to, to be thrown against. Um, 
Yeah, which makes it sort of like different from Chicago, which is like this muscular sort of acting, um, um, very, very, very ensemble based. I think Philly is a little bit more, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Nomadic in that way. Like I, I never had like a full affiliation with any theater that I just worked with them all the time. Like I worked every, everywhere, anywhere that people would let me and in every form, like from dance theater to, you know, the classical plays. So it's very diverse, both in, in style and in thought. And Morgan, you grew up in the Bay Area. Do you think the Bay Area has a, a theater style? It does. It definitely does. I think that the Bay Area, there's a real excitement around stories, like narrative stories, new play development. And maybe I'm much more familiar at this point with the New York scene, which can just sometimes feel like a a series of inside jokes, <laughs> which is not always a good thing. But there's like a, there's a, I don't know, grittiness is sort of too obvious, but there, there's some, there's something happening in New York that's very unique. Um, and I, I, I'm still sort of like getting a, the Philly flavor, like trying to understand the differences, but I, I do, as an outsider, as a New Yorker coming into Philly, I do really get this sense of strong community in Philly. Right, because, because the two of you are now recently announced, I think I can still say it's recent, right? You're, you're recently announced co-artistic directors along with Yuri, I'm now blanking on his last name, Yuri. Yurinov as well as Blanca Ziska, um, co-artistic directors of the Wilma Theater in Philly. What is that like? That, that's a new model for the regional theater scene, right? Or the US regional theater scene to have four artistic directors. How does that work? It is new. We are figuring it out. And in COVID <laughs> times, in COVID yeah. times, new upon new upon new. Yeah, yeah. so the, the structure is that there's four co-artistic directors, uh, Blanca Zisco, who's the founding artistic director or co-founding, um, invited us all in and we have a rotating structure. So each year one person is the lead artistic director and the rest of us sort of support and collaborate with that person. So right now we're in Yuri's season. Um, and so James and I and Blanca are collaborating and learning how to work together and how to co-lead an organization that uh, we really, or I personally didn't get to spend that much time with before we got shut down. So yeah, we started in January and then got shut down in March. That's all so new. Yeah. Yeah, I don't even think we had had like a, a whole meeting where we were all in the same space together before we all had to go remote. Like that just never happened. We had a photo shoot and then yeah. <laughs> we had a launch and then we went remote. Yeah. Yeah. A thing I'll say about the Wilma's history is that they, you know, it's it's sort of got these roots of like shared leadership. So in a way, it feels like coming home a bit. Um, but this is certainly a different animal than than a husband and wife running a theater together. <laughs> right, right. It was co-founded. It was co-founded yeah. by a husband and wife. Yeah. Is the Hothouse Company continuing at the Wilma? Is that part of it? That's an acting company, right? It is. They meet uh, uh weekly most of the year and they take a big break in the summer and they take a few breaks throughout the year. Uh, they train together 
sometimes they work on plays that we're considering for the season together. Um, it's it's really, an, uh, Blanca had this vision of a, a space for continued actor training in Philadelphia. And she thought that this would be a really great way to do that. Um, they've, they've sort of like pulled together their own uh, pedagogy of, of training for the actor that borrows from um, practitioners from Greece, from France, from, you know, Blanca's experiences over the years. Um, and it's this amazing group of actors that are sort of like astonishing to see perform. Yeah, this is one of the aspects of the Wilma that most excites me because it, it feels like one of those European theater companies where it's just the same group of people working together over and over and they get to know each other so well and the trust is sort of palpable. And so like what you can do on stage, you, you can just take things that much further because you have this built-in intimacy. And that's sort of how I'm used to working in New York most of the time is just with like a collaborative group of my friends basically who just come together over and over and you're and you're building a language together and you you can see it when that when they perform together you can see the the depth of the relationships and you have your own theater company is that going to be able to continue i mean this is that collection of friends right i mean yes, but it is a theater company new saloon is my theater company in new york and i'm a co-artistic director with mally mize and milo kramer so I'm sort of used to the shared leadership structure at a much smaller scale. Um, and we are, I guess you could say dark for the moment, <laughs> dormant, but the Wilma is actually gonna produce minor character, which is our adaptation of um, Uncle Vanya and Yuri's gonna direct that. So there is, it is alive in this one specific way. Oh, that's fantastic. And, and Maddie Wise was in my production of Test Match at ACT in yep. the fall. I mean, it's a small world, right? I mean, yeah. What gives you hope in this moment of virtual theater? What I think has been really remarkable is, um, and also exhausting. I, I won't, I'll be very vulnerable about that. It is both exciting and exhausting. <laughs> that our industry has just decided not to stop. The regionals did not stop. Like for the most part, they have kept going and trying to pivot and, and figure out what to do. And I was sort of of two minds about that and a little apprehensive about that initially. But now after seeing so much really brilliant work coming out of different places and from different people, I think the process of making a play and theater performers making art is really different from filmmakers. Like I think even if we do film something that we make, it just sort of feels different. It's, it sits in a different place. So I've been really pleased to see our art form try to like meet the screen in a way that um, it's not trying to mimic film and television, but is actually trying to do maybe a different thing. And I also really love that everybody can access it. Like it's it's not a thing where if you don't live in a big city, you can't see world-class theater. Now you can. I mean, I, at the very beginning of the pandemic, I was watching these gorgeous productions from, from all over the world, you know, that I never would have gotten to see because I don't live in Prague, I don't live in London. Um, and I, I've been really grateful for that. And it's had a real impact on my practice. So those three things, sort of our, 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 
process meeting the digital platform, how accessible it is, how inclusive it is to have things available that people can just click a button and watch. And then also uh, what we can learn from watching the art of, of theater makers all over the world. Um, I think we'll never be the same after this. I think it's gonna have a real effect on how we work and how we think about the form from now on. I would definitely agree with that. I think on a personal level, I am grateful uh, that it's forced me to work in different forms that, and, and sort of take what I know from directing theater and apply it to radio or apply it to film or just become a little bit more fluid about my idea of being an artist and my creativity. And I am sort of watching other artists do the same thing. And I think that's, that's a really exciting, liberating thing that we were forced to do. Have you, have you directed a, a radio or audio play in this, in this time? Yes, I did two, two radio plays with Playwrights Horizons in their soundstage series. Um, and then I just directed a short film last weekend. The way one does. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> In a COVID safe, socially distant way. Okay. Very good. Very good. Yeah. We all need to practice that. That's for sure. And have, have, have you two worked together creatively? Have you been in a rehearsal hall together or is that on the horizon? No one can see that. Yes, they're excitedly <laughs> clapping. We're tapping our knuckles together like little children. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm going to direct uh, Fat Ham, James M's play, Fat Ham. Um, we are still figuring out exactly what form it will be in, um, as it will likely not be in a theater with a live audience. Um, but we're supposed to start in February, which is real soon. Um, but so we've been... I mean, we're, we're working together quite intensely as co-artistic directors. Um, and so to be able to talk about art and <laughs> a play and design and actors is just like such a joy. Um, so, yeah. I, yeah. What is what is the day-to-day -day as co-artistic directors? I'm curious as an artistic director myself, what is your, what is the average day or the average week in this moment? It's sort of tiered because the, the structure of it, the way the Wilma could afford for artistic directors is that we're not all full time. Um, so I'm in the least, I'm in the most part time uh, year, which turns out to be not that part time. Um, <laughs> but uh, we, we, we talk a lot. We have a lot of conversations and because there's four of us, a lot, there's a lot of opinions to suss out. And the conversations are pretty fascinating. Um, we've spent many, many hours talking about the We See You White American Theater set of demands and we're sort of in the process of taking action um, based on those discussions. But I will say it is slow going, um, but, but also I'll say I'm grateful to not be alone. <laughs> to be with these yeah. other really smart people. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It, yeah, it's, it, that's, uh, I'm probably, I'm slightly more, less, no way, how do I say this? More full-time than Morgan is, but certainly not full-time. And um, yeah, it, it is a lot of conversations. It's a lot of like learning how to like 
begin the process of knowing how to fundraise, which is something I've never had to do. You know, I just show up to rehearsal and go, great, they're bagels. When someone had to raise the money to get those bagels. Um, so that's been, that's been illuminating and eye-opening and, and um, I'm grateful for that. The other thing I love is just the intergenerational nature of it, to just listen to Blanca talk about the history of the theater, to hear, it's also an, an international group of people. There are people from different parts of the world. It's uh, and, and not as diverse as it could be, but it is a diverse grouping of people. So I'm from the South, Morgan is from the, the Bay Area. So there's all sorts of lived experience in that, in those conversations. And we also have to include our, uh, our managing director, Lee Goldenberg, who is just a Philadelphia institution <laughs> and so much knowledge. So I just like sit and listen to her talk about like everything from budgets to, I mean, it's just like a, a fabulous education. It's almost like, it feels like the way you should learn how to learn to run a theater is just sort of by doing it. <laughs> it does feel, I forget who said this, James, but it does feel like we're, learning to drive the car while we're driving it kind mm -hmm. of thing and I, and the going remote and making digital work and making radio plays etc just adds on to that yeah because we're we didn't know how to do that before <laughs> no i mean i directed a radio play what was that in may mm -hmm. i'd never i'd never <laughs> had no idea what and as i'm working on it i'm like oh i i i can hear the things that i need to hear now but I couldn't, yeah. you know, it was just completely new. It was a completely new. And what do you think will get pulled, pulled through? Like what, like, like, you know, with this sort of, we're what, eight months into this. Um, what do you think when we're able to gather will be some things that are like, oh, this is, this is still what we expect from a theater. My hope is that the accessibility portion of this doesn't die. Like I really, um, I'm hoping that the unions and the or in the organize the Lord and all of those organizations sort of realize how um, powerful it is to to be able to like have what you make on a stage in Philadelphia show up on a stage in you know Georgia or Florida or not on stage but on a on someone's um, TV screen. Um, and for them to be able to watch it. I just think about the person I would have been if I could have watched the play at 13 when I was like, I'm gonna write a play. I don't really know what that means. Like I it would have changed the course of my life. I didn't I'd see a play until I was probably in high school really. Um, and so at 13 seeing that it would have had a real effect on me. And um, I hope that doesn't go away. I hope there's a lot of plays with people like kissing and holding hands and like making out. I don't want a bunch of plays about how we couldn't touch each other for, like <laughs> once we're back in the theater, I really don't want to watch that. This plays Please, with people spitting on their hands and then rubbing <laughs> people's faces. Yes. Nah. Right, singing, singing like, in big, big basso open lunged ways for no good reason. Yes. Spitty yeah. singing, yeah. yeah belly laughing in someone's face. I want to see all of that. <laughs> this podcast is called Place Here, Time Now. And at a certain point, I ask people to do their own Place Here, Time Now. And I guess by that, I mean, like, if, if this was the beginning of a play, how would you describe 
where you are. As a little demonstration, because we're going to do reading of it, Awoye Timpo is directing a reading of Alice Childress's Trouble in Mind um, in mm. coming months. I'm going to read Alice Childress's Place Here Time Now. So this is the top of her play. And she actually really follows my, my prescription nicely. Act one, time, 10 o'clock, Monday morning, fall, 1957. Place, a Broadway theater in New York City, blues music in, out after lights up. That's Trouble in Mind by Alice Childress. Oh, I'm asking you to do so much in this, Jane. I, I asked you to read a play. I, oh. I'm now asking you. Okay, so Morgan, Morgan, you can go. I should go before the writer goes. Uh, time, way earlier than it feels by how dark it is outside. Place, my desk in my bedroom with um, my feet propped on an Ikea box because I'm too short for my chair. Okay. Um, time, early evening on a loop, place, a room that is way brighter than it actually is, filled with books, smelling of morning coffee, a rolly chair is warm. <laughs> Lights up. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And of course, what I'm seeing are, you know, two little people in beige boxes. So I love knowing, I love knowing what it really is. Two little people in beige boxes is like, ah, let me out of the beige. I keep muting myself because there seems to be a parade outside. Are they celebrating? Can you hear it? Oh, I heard something. Mm -hmm. I heard yeah. something squeaky. Coming by. Oh, yeah. oh it's like a music. drum line. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, you, well you have to go, <laughs> you have to get out there. Yeah, a party right to my front door. Lights up. And that was my conversation with James Imes and Morgan Green. Thank you so much for listening to Place Here Time Now. You can check out our other episodes at Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.